have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 14. It's where we're going to take from verses 13 through 23 and kind of uh, wrap up the rest of this chapter today. You know, life is, is always full of disagreements and conflicts. That has been my understanding as I've grown up and as I've aged. I have seen it not only in my life, but in the lives of so many other people. Just as we talked about last week, there aren't always black and white scenarios. Sometimes there is that gray area that tends to fall into the land of opinion. And, and we just don't know what is right and what is wrong. Thankfully, the Bible gives us some guidance. And Paul's letter here to the church in Rome is one of the best areas in which kind of gives us some guidelines or principles by which we can begin to relate to one another when we land in this part of is it right or is it wrong or does it really matter? Now, last week we talked about some of the principles that Paul laid out. He said, first off, for the strong people, those people who think that they have the freedom to do certain things, whether it be eating uh, meat or, or not or whatever, he, he wants them to understand that you must not look down or despise the other brother in Christ who does not agree with you on that. He also says to those who are weaker in their faith that it is for them a sinful thing to do something that, that the other fellow says is okay, that they should not pass judgment or condemn their stronger brother for his actions in doing those things. He then goes on, he says, third, that each person should be fully convinced in his own mind, in his own conscience. He needs to make up the decision what is right and wrong in certain matters that the Bible really doesn't speak about. And finally, he says that we should all just let God be the judge of the people around us as well as ourselves. We're not the ones to bring judgment into this. Today, as we move into the second half of the book of Romans, chapter 14, we're going to find that Paul has another practical way in which we can deal with this situation of, is it right, is it wrong, and who really knows, all right? And so he's going to tell us that there's ways that we can have this navigation through the disagreements and disputable matters. Let me give you an example um, of a dilemma that a certain preacher had. Not this preacher, but another preacher, all right? And, and I've read this uh, about, about what he was facing. A member of his church bought him membership into an exclusive club at a local hotel. Now, with this membership came all the rights and privileges of using their facilities, their swimming facilities, their dining facilities, and they had an excellent dining room area that, that the meals were, were for members rather inexpensive, inexpensive compared to the expense that it might be for somebody else. And they could use the facilities throughout to, to do whatever. Well, his, his member of his church who bought him this membership in this this club, had said this would be a great place that if you need to take people for a conversation over a dinner and you can use this, the facilities for you and your family and just enjoy that. Well, here's the dilemma. Every evening at that hotel, the dining room transforms into um, an entertainment location. And that there would be some scantily clad exotic dancers that would perform there nightly for the patrons who were enjoying their meal. Now, obviously, the preacher was not going to go in the evenings to the, uh, the entertainment dinners, but his, his, his concern was, can I go during the daytime and this not affect my witness to those around me? Now, everybody in town knew what 
went on at this hotel at night. And the question is, was he going to jeopardize his Christian witness and testimony if someone saw him coming out of there even during the daytime? Now that's a good question that he has. So what do you think? Silence. You all aren't ready to make a judgment on that one, are you? Okay. So, I mean, let's face it. We all face ethical and moral decisions daily. And, 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 and for many of them, the Bible gives us clear-cut guidelines. But does it do it about that situation? Well, it turns out the preacher decided that he was going to use that membership only once. And he did use it because he had the right to use it based on Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. That he knew going there to get, get lunch in the daytime was just going to get lunch in the daytime. There was nothing beyond that. But because of Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23, he made a determination that he was not going to use that membership anymore. Well, let me share his testimony with you in his own words that he has written out. This is what he has to say. He said, There, were, there, were, there we were, my guest and I, Enjoying our lunch at my private club at a local hotel to which I had been given a membership by someone in my church. Now the man across the table was a preacher from a neighboring town whom I had been encouraged to befriend. So I invited him for lunch and we were sitting by the window overlooking the beautiful swimming pool and I was telling him about my friend from church who had bought me the membership at this place. And I told him about the privileges that were mine as a member including the use of the pool. He looked rather shocked, and he said, Do you believe in mixed bathing? No, I replied with a smile on my face, but I don't have any problem with mixed swimming. He said, I thought it was pretty funny, but he never cracked a smile. And then he said, What are those large cages over there? Well, I said, I would never come here during the evening hours, I replied, but I understand that in the evening go-go dancers get in those cages or hoisted up where everyone can see them and perform at the pat for the patrons of the club. Needless to say, the rest of our lunch hour was extremely quiet. <laughs> Conversation was rather strained, and I could tell that my Christian brother was offended at being taken to such an establishment for lunch. I didn't see anything wrong with eating lunch there when the go-go cages are empty. And yet I never went back to that place and never used my membership again because although I felt perfect liberty to do it, the Bible teaches that I am to limit my liberty on the basis of love for my Christian brothers and sisters. Now, many of us would probably not like to hear that last statement because we like to do what we want to do and we feel we have the freedom to do those things and somebody else should not tell me no and if it's not against the law then why can't I do that, right? Well, the statement is this. Is what you're doing going to hurt or offend your Christian brother or sister? Then maybe you ought to reconsider. Now, this predisposition towards self-centeredness, that it's my rights, it's my, I can do what I want to do, that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Now, Bob already brought up our forefathers, and he, he talked about Adam. Well, Adam had a few other boys, too. There was Cain and Abel. Well, one day, we're seeing in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, God came to the son Cain, and he was asking him, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
Well, people have been expressing that sentiment ever since. I mean, what I do is my business. What he does is his business. And it doesn't matter. I don't have to watch after him. I don't have to care about him. It's, I'm not his keeper, am I? Well, God's answer to that question back then is still the answer that it is today. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. The things that you do are to be for the benefit of your brother and to keep him from stumbling and to keep him from falling. And so you are supposed to be there to help him out. So last week we learned that while we are not to judge our Christian brothers and sisters before, because they answer to God and they don't answer to us, we see that in Romans 14, 12. Today we're going to learn that we are responsible for the way that our conduct the things that we do affects their lives. So let's work through Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 23, and we'll see how Paul presents this helpful guiding principle. The first thing he tells us is, don't hurt your brother or sister in Christ. Don't do anything that's going to hurt them. That's the first thing we see. Let's look at verse 13. Therefore... Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. It's a transitional sentence that he uses here. He's kind of summing up what was previously said in, in verses 1 through 12 here in, in chapter 14. But those, both those who are weak and those who are strong, we have a an obligation by God to do certain things that are going to benefit those around us, all right? And see, it doesn't matter whether you believe that eating meat sacrificed to idol is good or bad. What matters is how do you use that scenario to treat your brother in Christ? Rather than passing judgment on one another, we should find ways not to cause our brother or sister in Christ any grief. We don't want to cause them to have a problem. And so he uses two words in this little verse here that they're very strong, vivid word pictures. All right. The first word is proskuma, which means a stumbling stone or a stumbling block. It's a picture of a path that is covered with rocks. And, and you've got to be careful how you tread down that path so that you don't trip and fall. But the problem is you're the one putting those stumbling blocks there All right, so that you can trip somebody else as they're walking. The second one is this word scandalon, where we get our word scandal. All right? Now, this word means hindrance. It's where we get this, this aspect of it, it, it pictures a trap that has been set for somebody, that you are baiting them with an opportunity to catch them in something. Right, so, you know, it's, it's, if we're tying it back into this aspect of eating meat that he's been dealing with earlier on, and you know that the person doesn't want to eat meat, it's, it's that you are creating a, maybe a luscious dinner for them, and you don't tell them that it is the meat until afterward, and you go, ha, ha, you ate alligator. Right? All right, so you're like, oh, what have I done? Right? So he, he says you're, you're, you're setting a trap, you're putting in stumbling blocks so people are going to fall, 
And, and commentators debate whether or not this word of stumbling block or the word hindrance refer to the same thing or whether they are on occasions where we are having a more severe temptation to the other person. Richard C.H. Linsky puts it this way in his commentary on Romans. He says, our resolve must stand never to hurt our brother spiritually nor, which is worse, to kill him spiritually. The trouble is that when we offend a weaker brother, we can never tell in advance whether he will, only be, will be only injured or will be destroyed. So Paul is saying, you've got to be careful here what you're doing. You just don't want to cause your brother an opportunity to stumble and maybe bruise his knee. But you don't want to put a trap out there in which he's going to lose his life. Now he's talking about this in a spiritual aspect. You don't want to hurt them spiritually by causing them to sin against not only their own conscience but against God. But you don't want to do something that could even be worse than that, which means to do something that's going to cause them to walk away from their faith in Christ altogether. Paul's overall point is very clear. We must do everything that we can to avoid bringing spiritual downfall to our brothers and sisters and enticing them to sin. While it may be okay for you to do something because you've resolved it and it's one of those gray areas, those matters of opinion, and you have determined, I'm okay with it. But if you set it before your brother or sister in Christ who feel that it's wrong you're enticing them to do something that goes against their conscience. Now, in our next verse, Paul concedes with the strong that really they're right on this basic issue of whether it's okay to eat meat or not eat meat. So he says here in verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. I don't know if I can overstate this enough, how radical this sounds, coming from an Orthodox Jew in which Paul was. See, from the moment of his birth, in infancy as he has grown into a man, he has been conditioned by studying the Scripture of the Old Testament that there were laws and principles that God had ordained for the people of Israel of what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And that even entailed what they should eat and what they should not eat. The Jewish people today still live by those kosher laws. Paul was as kosher as you could get. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He did everything by the letter of the law. And now he is in this position saying, I can do what? I can eat? I can eat that and I can eat that and I don't have to do that. And I can. He's changing his opinion because of what he has found in Christ. Nothing could have been more catastrophically different for this converted Jew than learning that even the kosher laws no longer applied to him. This left men like Paul in a quandary. Should they continue to keep these laws or should they abandon them and communicate with other people that it's okay as well? Paul wanted the Christians in Rome, both the Jews and the Gentiles, to know that all foods are clean. Everything that you can eat, anything you want, it's okay. 
But for the one whose conscience still thinks it's wrong, it is. All right? Even though it's okay, because that old covenant is no longer in enforced, there is a new covenant that Christ has put in place, and He has made things that are all clean. But yet for the man who still thinks that it's wrong, to him it is wrong. And so you've got these Christians in Rome who are coming from not only the pagan society and their religious practices, but you've also got the Jewish people who are coming into Christianity in Rome from their religious practices as well. And there's conflict over certain things that are right and wrong, and it's in these matter of gray areas. Uh, and, and so what do we do? And so with this hesitation in their minds, because of that, we need to be careful about how we use our freedom around them so it doesn't cause them to stumble and fall. Paul's going to go on and say in verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You see, the strong who feel free to eat certain meats are causing harm to the weak brother who feels it is still sinful for them to do that. So he's using really strong language here and, and, and language about the damage that is being done to the weaker brother because of the strong brother's freedom in Christ. He uses that word grieved. And it's, what that word means is it is, it is to cause pain or, or to, to bring distress upon them. But the damage doesn't just stop there. Paul says it may even destroy these people spiritually because of how you are living in your freedom. And it may ultimately bring about their spiritual ruin. So how is it possible for a strong person in faith to destroy the faith of the weak? Well, one possibility is by peer pressure. Peer pressure is something we all know well, don't we? It's been used against us, and we have used it as well. That's where we try to get somebody else to do something that they normally would not do because it goes against their conscience, but yet because everybody else is doing it, they do it to fit in. And yet they feel the guilt and the shame of what they've done, even though for everybody else it was okay. And they sin unto themselves because they violate their own conscience. It might even lead the offending to offending the weaker in faith to where they will finally say they're going to walk away from God altogether. I don't want to be the cause of, of somebody else walking away from their relationship with Christ because of my actions. And if my actions are going to contribute to that, I'm not going to do those things. That's what Paul is telling us. And since Jesus loved them enough to die for them, shouldn't we love them enough to do this, to lay aside my freedoms? Now that's hard for us as Americans, isn't it? Because we have fought for our freedom, right? We have our rights and we can demand our rights be, be, be adhered to, right? I mean, that's, that's who we are. 
But Paul is saying, yes, you have rights and yes, you have freedoms, but if it's going to cause your brother or sister to sin against their own conscience or if it's going to cause them to walk away from their faith in Christ and destroy them, bury your freedoms. Don't use them as a weapon. The second thing he says is, don't hurt your witness. Now this is really important. Look at verses 16 through 18. He says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Right. In these three verses, Paul gives us another reason for the strong being so, so discerning in his use of his Christian liberty is that he must never use his freedoms and his rights to insist that he gets his way in spite of what they think. He, if he's exercising his freedoms, creates a situation within the church where people are struggling on their own faith, then we've got a problem. We need to be sensitive to how the kingdom of God is perceived by other people. And if somebody sees me parking my car and going into the bar at lunchtime, and they are going to think poorly of this church because the preacher is an alcoholic, then maybe I ought to park down the street and walk in the back door, right? <laughs> oh, no. No, you, you protect the image of Christ and His church is what you do. And He's challenging all of us, especially those who are strong in our faith, to take inventory of our priorities. What is more important to you? Your brother and sister in Christ and their relationship with Him, or you getting to eat that steak that had just been sacrificed down at the pagan altar? What's more, much more important? So we need to shift things away from our self-interest and our rights and our freedoms, and we need to look to the interests of others rather than my own. The third thing he tells us here in, in verses 19 through 21, Paul says, you don't hurt the work of God. God has been doing some things here. And you don't need to hurt this that he's been doing. So he says, so let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not... For the sake of food, for the cheeseburger at White Castles, do not destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Right, so what he's looking at with all of this, he's telling us we must live out the values of the kingdom of God and what God is doing by acting in a manner that is ultimately leads to peace and to building others up rather than to tearing one another down. Right? We don't need to destroy those around us. And so rather than doing things or saying things that are uplifting and encouraging we often find ourselves doing just the opposite and condemning people because they don't see the freedoms that we have. That's not right. 
Have you ever noticed that at the beach, there are always children who want to build sandcastles? And there's always a child who wants to tear them down? All right? That's part of our human nature, isn't it? We're always wanting to do something that we think is really good. But there's always somebody who's wanting to come in and knock it out from underneath us. Sadly, the same often takes place in the church where some are working so hard to build up the body while others are knowingly and sometimes even unknowingly doing things that tear down the witness of the church and the work of God in the lives of the people that are there. This word destroy, what he uses here in verse 20, man, that's a really strong word. He is using this word as an indicator that those people who have this freedom, those people who are strong in their faith, that somehow they are causing their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble in a way that ultimately leads them walking away from their faith in Christ. How would you feel if something you said or something you did caused somebody else to say, I don't believe in God anymore? Wow. Now, we don't ever go into it that way thinking it's going to happen, do we? But we, but we often want to think about my own freedoms. <laughs> I can do this. You can't tell me I can't do this. It's not a sin. It's not in the Bible. The Bible says nothing about it. Well, it may not say anything about it. But it was going to cause somebody else to go against their own conscience. And if they do it, then it's not done by faith. It's, it's their sin. And they're doing it because of us. Matter of fact, Paul acknowledges that all foods are clean because they're no longer under this Old Testament covenant of regulations regarding those things. Yet he writes a little bit more on this topic. If you go over to the book of 1 Corinthians, and, and in chapter 8, he takes that whole chapter and he deals with this aspect of food and being able to eat the food or the meat that was offered as a sacrifice to the isles. Now, I don't want to go into all of that, but I kind of summarize it for you here. Paul will basically say, you know that there are a lot of other religions in this world, and some of them sacrifice animals to their pagan gods. Now, we serve a God who doesn't want us to sacrifice these animals any longer because of the sacrifice of Christ. So we don't need that. And one true, this, this one true God says that there is nothing that food does to make us think that we're any closer to him by giving him that food offering. Or that we're any further apart if we don't. Matter of fact, he says that food is immaterial with God when it comes to our relationship with him. However, there are people who have a different position in their thinking on that matter. Because how they have been raised in their religious background and they have had trouble deflecting that and they still think that there is something that is uniquely attached to the meat that is sacrificed to the idols he says so if if you eating that meat is going to cause your brother to sin who's got this weak conscience about it Paul then says if if what I do by eating that meat because I think it's okay and if it's going to cause you to sin because you think it's wrong and I offer you a piece and you eat it, now you've sinned against your own conscience. He says, I'm never going to eat meat again. Now, now, Paul's not saying you all need to be vegetarians. What he's saying is when it comes to what my actions might do to somebody else that might destroy their faith, 
then I'm never going to do that aspect of my freedom in order to protect them from falling in their faith. So while Paul is, has reiterated that all food is clean, the point is not about who is right or who is wrong. The point is about what is best for everybody. So let me ask you a question. How willing are you to give up your freedoms for your Christian brother and sister? And that's a hard question. I mean, that's a, that's a hard question that I've got to even answer myself. And how willing am I to say, yeah, I can do that, but I'm not going to do that because I don't want to offend somebody else. If I knew my involvement in something, I don't care whether it be politics or going to bars or going to heavy metal rock concerts, is going to cause somebody else to think poorly about this church because I'm in leadership in it, then I'm never going to do those things. I don't want to give them a reason to dislike Christ and his church because of my actions. Then he finally tells us here in verses 22 and 23, instead of telling us don't, 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 he says, do. Do stay true to your faith. He says, the faith that you have there in verse 22. The faith that you have. Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You need to stay true to your faith, what you believe. Now, that doesn't mean you can't grow in your understanding of what is right and what is wrong, and what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, what in those gray areas really become matters of opinion and how you should deal with that. But you need to stay true to your faith, because if you go outside your faith, that's sin. If you're going to do something that you believe is wrong to do and you do it, it's sin. If you don't do something that you believe that you should do, that's sin. And even James is going to tell us that in his, fourth, in his letter of the fourth chapter. He who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Right? So it comes down to our conscience. There's no need really to, to broadcast all over social media our rights and their wrongs and scream that, that we have the privilege and the right and the freedom to do this even though somebody else says we don't we tend to try and gang up on people rather than to protect them and to to help them come to a better understanding now, Paul does not say you don't ever have discussions about these things because then none of us will ever grow in our faith and our understanding of the Word of God but he says, don't pass judgment and don't cause them to stumble. Don't do things that are going to hurt them. In other words, you need to stay true to what you believe. The blessing at the end of verse 22 is the bottom line for the strong believers. They should act in such a way that they have no reason to condemn themselves by which they approve or they reject. All right? Paul reminds us again that there are those who are convinced, unconvinced about the freedom on these matters, they still doubt. And while eating itself is not wrong, he says, it is wrong to violate your conscience. 
So the weak believer who would not be eating from faith under his conviction that everything was okay, he's going to sin if he takes a bite of that sandwich. Whatever it is that you're doing. So what principles can we draw from these verses to help us then kind of navigate between the differences of opinion? Well, the first principle is this. It's called the principle of liberty. We do have a lot of freedom in Christ. All right? We have been set free from the laws of sin and death. And Christianity is very different from the law-based religious practice of Judaism, of the Old Covenant. But that does not mean that Christianity doesn't have any do's and don'ts. But we are more guided by principles than we are rules and regulations. All right? The second, we see that there is a principle of conscience. We have a conscience, and we should not violate our own conscience. Nor should we encourage others to violate theirs. Oh, come on, it's okay. Everybody does it. Right? You'll be okay. Your mama will never know. Right? I mean, we, we, we try to do those things, right? Why do we try to entice people to go against what they truly believe is right and wrong? Because we want our freedom to do it, to be able to do it, rather than tell us, no, we're not doing that. Third, we see that there's a principle of peace. Now, the primary goal for Christians is to do our best to live at peace with one another. We have been given a spirit of God that brings peace not only into us, but in how we relate to others around us. That we are to be, as Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Right? We are to be people who create peace rather than disharmony and dysfunction. Then there's the principle of silence. We have a freedom to hold our convictions, and at the same time, we have the freedom to hold our tongues. We just don't speak about things. Everyone doesn't have to know what we think, nor do we have to convince everybody that we're right and they're wrong. Right? If you've made a matter up in your own mind, that's good. But don't force it down somebody else's throat because you want them to accept your freedoms. Sometimes our freedom is really expressed in our silence. And if you've got the freedom to do something, enjoy it. But don't enjoy it by dragging somebody else with you. It's going to tear them down. Now here are some things that we need to keep in mind. Now let me emphasize and repeat. Paul, Paul's call for tolerance and acceptance in all of this has to do with disputable matters. All right, With matters that really are in that gray area. But if something the Bible says is wrong, you don't just, I mean, it's either wrong or wrong, and you speak truth to that. You don't just say, well, that's okay if you want to do that. No. If the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. If the Bible says it's right, it's right. But there are those areas that it just doesn't speak to. It's silent on. And when it is silent, maybe you should still be silent about it. Practice your freedoms but don't impugn your freedoms on others as well. One of the challenges we face has to do with determining what things are essential matters and what things are really disputable matters. We can err on the side of what we call the minimalists, 
In other words, that really there are very few things that God says we have to do, and everything else is freedom. And so in a liberal ecumenical society of the church, there are a lot of churches who are saying anything goes. Just believe in Jesus. But then we could err on the side of the maximalists, which say that, hey, you can't do this. There's a do not do, do not do, do not do, do not do. And oh, there is a do, but there's another do not do. And they're telling you all the do's and don'ts, but most of them are don'ts. All right? So that kind of fundamentalist thinking is destructive as well. So how do we fit somewhere in between mentioned last week, we're part of a restoration movement. One of our, our, our statements, a motto according to our, our, our movement is this, in essentials, that means in essential things are necessary for our salvation, there has to be unity. All right? In non-essentials, where the Bible really doesn't speak about in matters of opinion, there is liberty, there's freedom. But in all things, love. Now, the church get hung up on those three things, essentials, non-essentials, and everything. We need to be faithful to what we do. So, here's something that love should help us to do. It should help us respect and acknowledge genuine faith and sincerity in others from whom we differ. Love should not cause us, it should cause us to understand and respect where people are coming from rather than pushing our agenda upon them. One of the most important things that we can learn from Romans 14 is something that Paul does not say. Nowhere in the chapter does Paul say that the weak in faith must change their opinion. He doesn't say that. I mean, he's saying that in this topic of eating meat to sacrifice to the yodels or whatever, he's saying it's no big deal. It's clean. You can go ahead and eat. But he doesn't say the weak person who has a problem with it, they have to change their viewpoint on it. He doesn't say that. But what he does say is those of us who think that we're okay with it, we've got to change our freedoms for them. Now that's hard. But if I'm going to be like Christ, I'm going to put myself aside and I'm going to sacrifice my freedoms for the freedom of those around me. See, Paul doesn't tell them that they have to change their mind and he doesn't berate them for holding on to their view that they have to hold on to. But this is usually our first reaction when someone who differs from us, we want to change their minds and we want to convince them that we are right and they are wrong and force our freedom on them, don't we? Paul would certainly support the church's efforts to educate people to a better understanding of what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable in these gray areas. But he never will tolerate the fact that we're going to force our opinion on somebody else. Let me emphasize one more time. The important principle is this. None of us should ever violate our own conscience when it comes to faith. If I believe that God doesn't want me to do something, then I should not do it. And if somebody around me believes that God doesn't want them to do something or he wants them to do something, I should not force them 
entice them, entrap them into changing their opinion on that matter. We can have dialogue, and we can look at Scripture, and we can discuss those things, but if they're not matters that are essential to our salvation, then why do I want to argue? Now, let's go back to that uh, preacher that was gifted that membership in, in that uh, exotic club. I mean, that, that, that private club. He decided he was not going to continue to use his membership because it was clear to him that, the, that his presence at that hotel at that time of day or at any time of day could cause other Christians to think, hey, the, the preacher goes there. I can go there. It's okay. And they find themselves entrapped in a world that they don't really want to be in. All right? And when he was perfectly honest with himself, he realized that he really didn't feel comfortable there either. And so as a result of that, even without the go-go dancers in their cages, he decided he wasn't even going to use the lunchtime dining for it. So the one time he went was enough for him to make a decision on his freedom to use it or to lose it. And he chose to give it away, not to go back. He wanted to be in a place that would not distract people because of him from their relationship with Christ. One of my commentaries I was reading this, this week made this statement, and I loved it. I mean, I highlighted it, and I, and I put it in here. It's been said that those who are weak in faith live by conscience. Okay? It has been said that those who are weak in faith live by conscience. Those who are strong in faith by knowledge. But the more mature by love. We are to live in a, in a position of loving those around us rather than hurting them. God is right about all things, and while we try to think that God, what, while we try to think what God thinks, and to do what God would have us to do, let's show love and graciousness towards others who may not have the same opinion as we have. Let's pray.